Welcome back to the podcast. This is Shark Kareem, a technical director here at Evidence for Faith. And I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are. But just for a second, just close your eyes. Well, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes. But if you can, close your eyes. And I just want you to imagine it's a beautiful day in April. You wake up and there's palm trees and there's beautiful grass, beautiful outdoor area. There's a little beach and you see you see the ocean. You're in Florida. And so you pick up your notebook and your pen and you head to class and then you sit down outside. It's a beautiful morning. It's a beautiful day. It's 70 degrees. There's not a cloud in sight. There's no snow slush. There's none of that. <laughs> and you start learning about God's creation. You start learning about the ocean, marine science, all these really cool creatures. And then you have a wonderful lunch and then you don your swimsuit and you go out on the ocean to actually go see these things that you just learned about. Now, what am I describing? Yes, of course, I'm describing the 2020 marine biology trip. At this point, you're probably annoyed with me talking about it, <laughs> but there is still time to get your application in for the 2022 marine biology trip. So if you would like to take advantage for this opportunities for people 14 and up, so yes, if you're an adult, you can sign up to this. Um, there's still time to get your application in before February 28th. So to get more information on that, go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash 2022 marine biology, or click on our events tab when you're on the website. So as always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help keep this broadcast free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael in session 15 of the Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, as we're exploring Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament in our series on the road to Emmaus. And as we've been going along and seeing how these Old Testament or Old Covenant prophecies given to the Hebrew nation, to the Jews, on how to recognize the Messiah and what the Messiah, when he came, would be doing. That is the focus of this study. And we have seen, starting in Genesis, and we're into the book of Psalms. And in this lesson, we're going to finish the Psalms. And what we have seen so much, over and over and over, is God, in some cases, repeating certain prophecies so that the Jews would recognize him. Uh, we have seen that he would be a parable teaching Messiah. He would be the uh, a descendant of David, a descendant of Judah. He would be a descendant of Abraham. Um, and, and there's so many other things that we've covered. Um, but now we're getting to uh, the end of the book of Psalms. And as we've seen, Jesus has fulfilled all these things and absolutely perfectly. And as we continue in this study, we're going to be on number 50 starting today. Um, 50 of the major prophecies. And again, we're just covering the major prophecies, not the minor ones. There's just too many of those. But as we've looked at these major prophecies, we just keep seeing the picture over and over of how Jesus Christ actually fulfilled all of these things perfectly. And it, that is right there uh, an amazing miracle that God does, that he 
proclaims all of these things written a thousands or even hundreds of years beforehand and how they all came true through Jesus Christ um, when he came as the suffering Messiah. So today, as we're finishing off, as I say, the book of Psalm, we're at number 50. So this is the 50th. So if you're taking notes and have your journal ready or if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along or you can just listen as I read the passages. We're using the English Standard Version primarily in our study, a word-for-word translation. And as we go through this, we're going to be at Psalm 110. So Psalm 110. And it's, it's a short psalm. It's only a, a few verses long. It's, it's not very long. We're going to be looking, though, at the first seven verses of this psalm, uh, which actually is the whole psalm. Um, it's just seven verses long. And as we've been doing, I uh, count the numbers. So it's, as I said, number 50. The psalm is, uh, the prophecy is coming out of Psalm 110. And I entitled this one, because each time I give you a title for it, this one is The Royal Priest our Messiah, the royal priest, our Messiah. So let's begin by reading this this psalm again out of the English Standard. And again, sort of picture if you're familiar with the life of Christ and, and about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, particularly if you've read the book of Hebrews, um, you're going to see some really familiar things popping out here. So starting in verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpse. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, as we know, psalms, uh, these different uh, psalms that we have throughout this entire book, they're primarily songs or what they are. There's, There's... songs. It's a book, a lot of praise. And um, David wrote many of these. And and this one here is a Psalm of David. And this Psalm is quoted in the New Testament. Thus, we know without a shadow of a doubt, it's messianic because it is quoted. Um, And as we're going to see here, let's just pick up a part of this because there were some fascinating things in in this passage. um, As it starts off, the Lord says to my Lord, that's Yehovah, uh, says to Adonai, if you want to get uh, really technical into the Hebrew on this. Um, so God is saying to my God or Lord to my Lord, different translations um, will put different words there, but it's Yehovah to Adonai is what the actual thing is. But um, back in Jesus's days, he was doing his ministry as recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45. Um, He asks the Pharisees a question. The question, and we'll pick it up here in Matthew and read this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to him, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, it's a play on words, uh, no doubt, but Jesus is making a doctrinal statement here again, saying that um, he is a descendant of David, as it talks about, but that he is the son of God. Um, Because this actually says in this psalm, that it reads, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. So Jesus himself uses this. So, I mean, how else can you explain this? It's puzzling to people, but it's God speaking to God and about what he is going to do, that God is speaking to my God, um, that um, sit at my right hand. That's a place of high honor too. Um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This is a tremendous statement. Um, and, and as I said, it's Yehovah saying to Adonai. Both are terms Lord or God in our translations. Thus, this verse is definitely God speaking to his Messiah, God speaking to God. And the Messiah is part of the Trinity. So this is showing that the, um, that there is a Messiah coming and he is going to be God. And Jesus was making this claim. And not only does this make mention of God speaking to the Messiah, the Son of God, who is, of course, Jesus, we also see that Jesus, is, his proper place is at the right hand of God. That indicates authority. That indicates honor. That indicates power and dignity that he shares with the Father. He's on the same throne as the Father. And today, Jesus is at the right hand of God. We know this. And we, we see this. And for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, After making purifications for sins, he, this is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, now the point in which we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And again, we'll read again in in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we see in this psalm, verses 2 and 3, that um, uh, in verse 1, we see this this all unfolding and being used as prophecy by the writer of the book of Hebrews. In verses 2 and 3, we see the rule of the Messiah is being foretold, that his rule would be foretold. So going back to the psalm, we read, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So this is talking about him ruling a mighty scepter. A scepter is what a king would have. And so it's, it's talking about his rule. And he's going to rule the people. And he is holy. Well, there's, of course, there's no person who is holy. Only God is holy and Jesus is God so he's holy but it talks about the enemies we've we've seen mentioned here rule in the midst of your enemies well who's the enemies of the messiah well we can get a list of that from Paul's writing 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. And it reads, for, we must, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what's the enemies? Well, if you go back to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, God created a perfect world. There was no sin. There was no death. There is no illness. There is no decay. There is no sickness, no crying, no tears, no depression, no cancer, no mutations, nothing. Everything was absolutely perfect. But then man, his jewel of creation, rebels against him. And in doing so, brought the curses of God upon all of, as it's, um, Paul writes, all the cosmos. Not just human, uh, mankind, but also all of creation, as Paul tells us in the, in the opening of Romans, um, that all of creation is suffering because of this and waits for its day of, of redemption. And so um, the entire cosmos is started the laws of decay and entropy and stuff have, have all become apparent. Predator-prey relationships started coming. So now death is here. Death only came because of sin. Sin and uh, and death are in a very tight bonded marriage. And Christ had to come to conquer sin. And as it says here also, he had to destroy death. You do understand here again, we see evidence that the earth was not formed by millions of years or billions of years of predator-prey relationships of genes and gene pools being uh, wiped out, only the survival of the fittest uh, made it to the next level and passed their genes on. That this, this whole thing having to do with the Darwinian evolution theory, this is not true because death, which that's what runs Darwinian evolution. Death, as many Darwinian evolutionists will even proclaim, death runs evolution because you have to have genes being eliminated from the gene pool and only the healthy genes being surviving. So death is a major part of Darwinian evolution. It runs on death. Yet here it says that death is an enemy and it is sin married to it. That's what Christ had to come. Christ came to uh, remove sin in a single day. We're going to see that's a prophecy coming up later on in Zechariah. But Christ came to remove sin in a single day, as it talked about here in Hebrews, we just read before. But also he came to conquer death. So death is not part of the creation. Though I have heard some pastors, many pastors, many Bible teachers and stuff say that death was part of God's creation. I totally disagree because death was something that had to be destroyed. It's not something that God's created. Death is here and says, oh, look, it's perfect. Things are dying. Uh, the the roadrunners being killed by the coyote and stuff. No, that is not God's perfect picture. Everybody was living and everything was living in unity and peacefulness, which is what we're going to see in the future as the book of Revelation shows us. When all this is all over, the final judgment, and we go into eternity forever with God, living with him, there is no sin. We're back to this paradise. And there is no death again. Death is not part of the equation. And as it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, death has to be destroyed. It's an enemy of God, not one of his creations. Paul tells us it's an enemy of God and had to be destroyed. So that's what this is talking about. And this prophecy is that we see here in verses 2 and 3, it's talking about Christ, the Messiah, when he comes to defeat his enemies. He defeated sin. He defeated death because he's alive today. 
So that is a major thing that we often don't catch. And it also describes that you catch that mentions the name Melchizedek. Now, if you've been listening in the series, this is something that's not new either, because Melchizedek goes back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, and the writer of the book of Hebrews spends a, uh, a lot of time in many chapters, uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, talking about Jesus as our high priest in the form of Melchizedek, who is a higher priest, uh, a much more superior priest than what the uh, the tribe of Levi with Aaron's descendants being. And Jesus is in the order of that. It, he actually says uh, a priest uh, being described here, uh, the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see this um, this prophecy and Jesus is our ultimate high priest. It's prophecies we've already talked about in the past. But this also goes to a, a, the prophecy found in Genesis 12, but also in F Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he was a symbol of who Jesus would be like, a superior priest to, um, to uh, Aaron and his descendants. So that is that prophecy that we see that was number 50, which takes us to number 51. And excuse me there, I had to get a short slurp of tea. We're going to go to number 51 now. We're still in Psalms, of course. This is Psalm 118. <clears throat> Excuse me. 118, verse 22. And this one is called, the topic for this one is rejection of the Messiah. Psalm 118, verse 22, the rejection of the Messiah. You know, it's hard for Christians sometimes to comprehend how people could be in direct contact with Jesus, seeing his miracles, watching him do the impossible, um, from healing to controlling nature to casting out demons and everything, and still reject him and reject his title as the Messiah. But, you know, that wasn't something just in the first century Judea. That is the same thing happening today. People having the word of God can read and see and, um, and, and hear the, the facts that Jesus is truly the Messiah, as this lesson is pointing out. Yet, they reject him. I have uh, many times, I can't even begin to count how many people I have talked to um, in showing evidence that the, the Word of God is true through archaeology, through science, um, through Scripture itself, and only to have people say, I just, I, I can't accept it. I can't believe it. Um, I just refuse. It's not that they can't, they refuse. Um, some people are just blinded and people stumble over the offer of abundant life that Christ gives us, the, the offer of salvation and eternal life with God shouldn't come as too much of a surprise because though many of the Jews thought that everybody would accept that when, when the Messiah would show up, that all the Jews would follow after him and accept him. Well, that didn't happen, obviously. He was rejected by many, which we're going to see is many prophecies, and we've talked about some of these, that he would be rejected. And Psalm 118.22 is one of these. It, it reads, the stones the stone, excuse me, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So it's the honored stone, yet it's being rejected. Now, this is a phrase that is used um, and, and is repeated many times. This prophecy here is repeated many times that the Messiah would be rejected. 
the honored stone, the honored piece, the most honored. When you build a building, the cornerstone is is the most honored piece of, of the structure. And it becomes, as scripture says, a stumbling block for many. Um, for example, Peter talked about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Look what he writes. He writes, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter is quoting this prophecy. And he's explaining this is why people are rejecting the Messiah. Not everybody is flocking to the suffering Messiah. Uh, many, Most of the Jews didn't recognize him. They were so far away from the scriptures. They were so far away from understanding uh, God. Uh, they become more ritualistic and everything and, and honor-based that even when God, the creator of all, came and, and walked among them, they didn't even recognize him, and they rejected him. Paul talks about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. He's the honored stone. Again, making a reference to this prophecy. The, Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts in chapter 4, verse 11, reads, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Luke also writes in his own gospel in chapter 20, verse 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The Messiah was going to be rejected. And it, Mark even talks about it. In Mark chapter 12, verse 10, he pulls the scripture out. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? So even Mark got into it. And, you know, even Matthew did. Matthew quoted the psalm. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God predicted that Jesus would be rejected by the majority of the people. Many people today, I've had many discussions, particularly when I was teaching in the public school system, because it was, I never made it a secret that I was a Christian, and students would often come and ask me questions dealing with theology, and um, particularly Christianity and stuff. There was a, um, a lady who, an elderly lady, I'm sure she is gone now because I no longer live in that area. She was an elderly lady and actually came to me one day and said, I'm going to supply you with Bibles. And she just showed up um, at my, uh, at my house one day with uh, a couple of cases of Bibles and not just Bibles. The, and these were not pew Bibles. Many of these were like study Bibles. And she also had devotional books and Bible study books. And she says, um, I know that you have contact with a lot of people, so please pass these out at your school. And I did. Anybody who, I, and I made it known to all the teachers, if anyone in my school, you know, any of the students, their students want a Bible or have, you know, a question or want a Bible study thing or, or something, a handbook, I said, have them come to me. I got them in a closet and I'd be glad to pass them out. And I did for many years. 
at that school till I left. I was handing out many Bibles. But even so, I mean, the student body knew I was doing this too. And the thing is, and, and never charge for them, just hand them out free, anybody who wanted to have one. And the thing is uh, that even by handing these out, sometimes some students would take one, they'd start to read it or something, and they would you know, get in discussion with me that they just can't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, um, that everything in the Bible is true. And we had a couple of other teachers at our school who actually said that, you know, you can't trust the scriptures. They've been rewritten. Uh, they didn't even exist in written form till after Constantine and all sorts of things. And they got many students so confused. I felt so sorry for these kids because they're being fed so much wrong and false information about the Bible and about who Jesus was. But I would explain it to them and people would just totally just, just without really any real reason many times, just say, I don't want to accept this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have a relationship with God because and I remember one person saying directly to me, like I, I want to have, I want to live my own life. I don't want to have my life like a, a Christian life. I want to, I want to go out and have fun and stuff. And so, sadly, um, people rejected Jesus. Um, they did in his day. They still do today. And Jesus even made many comments about um, people going to heaven and to hell. Now, some pastors will teach their God won't send anybody to hell because he's a God of love. And they're calling God a liar when they do that because God definitely will send people to hell. Jesus said that um, the way to heaven is very narrow if you make it. The way to hell is very wide and most go there. So heaven's not going to be nearly as uh, highly populated as, as hell will be. And that's a scary thought right there. But God foresaw that people would reject him. And that's what we see. So sadly, this prophecy continues to this day. People are still rejecting Jesus. And I hope you have not done that. I hope that everybody who's listening to me now, you've You've come to realize Jesus truly is the Messiah. You only have access to eternal life um, with Father God through him. There is no other way. And he came and died for your sins. He conquered sin and he conquered death. We will live forever with him. And as it says in Scripture too, we will be like him. Um, we can't understand and fathom what that is uh, in our minds today, but it's a great promise. And that's what keeps us, many of us Christians going, is the promise of what we see coming in our future. Well, let's move on. Number 52, and this is actually the last of the prophecies, major prophecies in the book of Psalm. So what we're going to read here is Psalm chapter 132. 132, and we're going to look at two different sections here. It's verses 11 and 12, and then verse seven, verses 17 and 18. And I'm, in, I'm titling this, The Horn of David and the Lamp. Yes, Lamp. So, The Horn of David and the Lamp. Now, as I said, this is the last major prophecy that we're going to see in the book of Psalm that goes and, and is directly related to Jesus the Messiah. Uh, the first part of this passage, uh, verses 11 and 12, as I read these, it's an oath God made to David. So if God makes an oath, it can't be broken, of course, but he's making an, an oath, a promise to David, stating that the Messiah would indeed be in his lineage. I had to think at some points, David messed up so many times in his life. 
Uh, maybe he kept doubting that, okay, maybe God, because I saw that God, you know, gave, um, gave up on Saul because Saul rejected him. And um, but maybe I've done bad things too, which David knew he did. He committed murder and broke every commandment. But the thing is, God kept coming back and saying, David, I, I am going to honor my promise to you. I will. And in here we read it again. So Psalm 132 uh, verses 11 and 12 reads, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So this passage here is, again, going back to um, promises God has made uh, many times to David uh, that his descendants will sit on the throne, unlike what happened with Saul, and that his lineage would go on forever. And it is. And uh, as we talked about in the last lesson, that the, the lineage of David is still going on because Jesus is a descendant of David and Jesus is eternal. So he is sitting on the throne, as we've already mentioned. He's on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And as he's he's sitting there, he is forever sitting on the throne. So we have that. So I guess, I, I just wonder if sometimes David's sort of doubted um, because he, he messed up so many times in his life. But anyway, the second part of this psalm, um, Psalm, again, it's 132. This is verse 17 and 18. It's a little different. The second part of this prophecy refers to the Messiah again, but this time as a horn. Yes, a horn. So follow as I read this. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, a lot of people are puzzled by this prophecy, and I've had some um, very well, well-respected people come to me uh, um, and have asked me, can you explain about this horn business? I don't quite understand it. Well, horn is, uh, it's a literal image, of course, in the Bible. We're not just talking about this prophecy here, but in the Bible, the horn is, um, for one, it's sometimes referred to as an image of a weapon, a defensive weapon. Um, and many animals had horns and stuff like this, but it also uh, had another meaning. And it, it came to symbolize a horn in ancient times and ancient to the Jews came to symbolize someone who had power political and sometimes military, but power. Uh, we even see this in Mesopotamian art today, that horns sometimes even are indicating of a, a, de, uh, a deity. I have seen, when I've had travels over to Israel, I have seen some uh, idols, the um, false gods and stuff, and some of them had horns um, to show power, and that's what they're talking about. Um and so we, we see this type of thing happening with horns. And since a horn is a symbol of power, particularly its kingly power, it's not unnatural then that it represents the anointed one, the Messiah. And that's what we read here. This is um, a symbol of the expected Messiah. That the horns would be um, used for radiance and stuff, but it's also having to do with um, power and majesty. And, of course, when Jesus comes again, <clears throat> excuse me, 
when Jesus comes again, he's coming as the, the great warrior, judge, king, Messiah. <clears throat> and that's what this is talking about. So the Messiah here is referring um, to basically like the horn. The horn in the Old Testament is power. And it's talking about David's descendants. This is having to do with the Messiah. Um, I mean, it dealt with David and his kings, his his sons who became kings because they're power. But the ultimate prophecy here, the ultimate fulfillment of this is, of course, the Messiah. And But you notice, too, it mentioned something else in there. It mentioned a lamp. A lamp. And no doubt this refers, again, to the Messiah. How many times did Jesus refer to himself as the light of the world? So light of the world, Messiah, all comes together. And that even goes back to when we talked about the tabernacle, when we were doing Exodus, that the um, the lampstand in the tabernacle represented God as the eternal light. And here we're seeing the lamp and, and talking about the coming Messiah. Because even John, the, the apostle John wrote in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to him saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here we have the horn and a lamp, two symbols, <coughs> excuse me, of the Messiah when he comes. How you will recognize him to the Jews, he will be a person who will be mighty and he will be a person who will be the light of the world. And Jesus claimed many times to be the light of the world. But he came as the suffering Messiah. His power was great, but he wasn't coming as the warrior, judge, king Messiah. That's what both Jews and Christians now are awaiting. We Christians are awaiting the second coming of Jesus, the suffering Messiah. He came the first time to atone for sin, to uh, conquer sin and death. And now when he comes again, he will be the warrior, judge, king, Messiah. And that's how this uh, psalm ends. And with that, we have come to the end of our lesson today, having to do with uh, major prophecies in the book of Psalms. Next, we're going to go into Isaiah, but that's our next lesson. We'll get to that. But I want to thank you so much for joining and sitting in on our lesson today. And again, if you have any questions um, or comments that you want to make, um, please contact us at Evidence for Faith. You can go to our website, um, evidenceforfaith.org. would love to hear from you. Um, And if you would feel convicted by the the Spirit of God to uh, join our ministry and support it, we we live on support. Um, We pay our salaries and stuff by the support. That's why we don't charge a certain fee for going out and and, uh, speaking and doing things. We we uh, I'm never going to charge to hear the gospel of, of Christ. We do it. We'll take a love offering or something if you want to book me for an event. But we do not charge. I do not have a set for you for coming and speaking. And we're offering, as you see, our podcasts and our lessons and stuff are totally free. God gave us the free gift of salvation. I am not going to try and make money off of it. That is not my purpose. I know there are some that do that. Um, that's between them and God. I just refuse to do that. God gave me salvation free. I'm going to share it freely with people all also as much as I possibly can. But in doing so, we need people to help support our ministry. So if you'd be willing to do that, we would 
be very appreciative and we pray for you. If you have any concerns or anything, please let us know. And we'd love to hear from you just in general. So until we meet again on our next lesson, um, just please take care. God bless and enjoy going through the word of God. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.